everyone to the MHU podcast. We're continuing our series today, Does Prayer Work? And today's episode is a sequel to our uh, most recent episode on Jeremiah. Today we're going to be looking at the prayer role of prayer in the life of another uh, biblical figure. And Elaine is going to be leading us through uh, this material today. So, Elaine, which biblical figure are we looking at today? <laughs> yeah, so we're looking at Paul today. And uh, I explained in the last episode that I chose to look at Paul and Jeremiah for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is that for both of these men, we have a, a lot of first-person and third-person accounts of their experiences. So in Jeremiah's case, we see a little of him in Second Chronicles. And we also have first- and third-person accounts in the, books, uh, in the book of Jeremiah. And also some first-person accounts in Lamentations. And in Paul's case, there's, there are a lot of um, third-person accounts in Acts. And we, of course, have his writings in the New Testament letters. Um, so another reason to choose to look at these two men is that there are some strong similarities and some big differences in their lives and ministries that I think help us to see some of the depth of what prayer can be um, for us as individuals. Um, so it's possible to know a fair amount about their lives, and we can understand from that um, some of where they're coming from in their approach to prayer. Uh, and it's also probably important to point out again here that um, while both of these guys recorded some of their prayers and writings, we, we only get a glimpse of what their prayer lives were really like. Um, we don't see a full written record of every prayer they ever prayed. Um, but I do think it's important that the prayers that we do have in the Bible are preserved and there's you know something to be gleaned from those specific prayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so can you give us a kind of overview of Paul's life and maybe how he compares to Jeremiah as like a, a prayer? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's well known that Paul was a very zealous Pharisee before his conversion. So he would have been pretty well educated. He would have known the scriptures very well. And we know that he had a zeal for his religion that initially drove him to persecute the early church. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that after his conversion, his zeal was redirected towards spreading the gospel. Um, so he had a pretty fruitful ministry and he also experienced a lot of persecutions. Um, and so as far as similarities and differences between Paul and Jeremiah, um, first we see they both had pretty clear callings from God. Uh, we talked in the Jeremiah episode, um, about Jeremiah's call that God gave him a clear message of warning for the people of Judah in in Jeremiah chapter one. And God also warned him that the people were going to fight against him. And then in Acts, in Acts 9, we see Paul's calling after his conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after Paul's conversion, God sends Ananias to restore Paul's sight. And the Lord tells Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so we see that in both cases, these men are given a message to deliver, and both are warned that they're, they're going to suffer for the carrying that message. Um, And then we also know that both men were indeed heavily persecuted for their obedience to delivering those those messages. So um, we talked in the Jeremiah episode about a few of the things Jeremiah endured. He was put in prison. He was confined to the courtyard of the guard after he was in prison. Um, He was thrown into a cistern at one point. He was accused of being a traitor, things like that. And for Paul, obviously we know from Acts that 
and from his letters um, that he endured a lot of persecution at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. And he was eventually even ultimately martyred. Um, and then in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a list of the persecutions he's endured, including being imprisoned, flogged, stoned, shipwrecked, and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. So we see both Jeremiah and Paul saw a lot of hard times as a result of their obedience. Um, but one key difference between these two men is that while Jeremiah had barely any friends and saw virtually no fruit in his ministry, in his lifetime at least, um, Paul had many supportive friends and saw a lot of fruit. Um, there are multiple examples in Acts and uh, Paul's letters that show that he was deeply loved and supported by his mentees and that he really cared for his flock. Um, and then in terms of their personalities, they appear to be very, very different men. Um, Jeremiah strikes me as being a poet at heart. Um, he expresses the inexpressible through metaphor and spends a lot of time in lament, um, whereas Paul, on the other hand, has a very logical, theological mind. So he occasionally indulges in metaphor, but for the most part, his writings are very clear explanations of theological and practical ideas. Mm. Um, and this difference is in their personalities is very pronounced in the prayers that we have that are preserved for us. So, for example, Jeremiah, he cries out to God saying he wishes that his head was a spring of water so that he could cry as much as he needs to. Um, and then Paul prays that the Philippians would grow in insight so that they can understand the, uh, the grace they've been given and live pure and blameless lives. Uh, all right, so can you give us an overview of Paul's prayers? <laughs> sure. Um, so first of all, I would argue that the prayers that we have from Paul that are recorded in the Bible are primarily recorded as teaching devices. Um, and so I have a few reasons for thinking this. Um, one reason is that we don't really see Paul praying for himself very much, aside from um, his mention of praying for the thorn to be removed in 2 Corinthians 12. I can't really think of anywhere where he, we where see him praying for himself. Um, there are a few places where he asks others to pray for him, but in most, pla- uh, most of those instances, he actually is asking for prayer for fruit in his ministry, not necessarily for personal petitions like healing and stuff. Um, Do you think that that might just be um, a manifestation of the genre? Like, these are all letters that he's writing to other people, so it would be a weird place for him to be right. praying for himself. Yes, and that these the prayers that he's writing in these letters are also being used as teaching tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, a good point. But you're right that, yeah, if he's writing a teaching letter, he's probably not going to write. Yeah, so he, we have, like, mentions of him, or he, we have spots in these letters where he mentions that he has self-directed petitionary prayers that have gone unanswered, like the prayer about the thorn mm-hmm. side. And then he asked them. He asked other people to pray for his ministry. But uh, Justin's point is, this is not kind of the place for him to be praying for himself. And your point is right. Yeah. Uh, the point of these letters is to teach, and he's using prayer to teach in the letters. Correct. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so another reason I think his recorded prayers are primarily teaching devices is that in the Book of Acts we see accounts of him praying with others fairly often. Um, For example, when he's about to leave a place uh, where he has deep friendships or when he's making decisions about what to do next. Um, But the prayers themselves are not recorded. Uh, So, for example, in Acts, 
uh, 21, it says Paul prayed together with the disciples and their families before he left them, but that's all. We don't um, even get a gist of the content of that prayer. Um, and then another thing that makes me think his recorded prayers are teaching devices is that he barely prays at all in his letters to Timothy and Titus. So Paul was their mentor. Timothy and Titus would have known him very well. They would have prayed with him a lot over the years. He probably didn't feel he needed to teach them in this way. Um, and so he just, his prayers are pretty short in those letters. And uh, Yeah, a lot of what you see in the letters to Timothy and Titus is less uh, like instruction and doctrine and more like reminders. Like, remember what I told you about uh, this thing you should be doing. Remember to do it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, maybe if, if your thesis is that Paul uses prayer in his epistles to uh, kind of impart doctrine as like a vehicle to impart doctrine to newer believers or people who need that, then yeah, that makes sense that he wouldn't be doing that in the letters to Titus and Timothy. Yeah. Yeah, and then another reason to think that is that the prayers themselves are just packed with theological nuggets. Um, and they kind of speak for themselves as teaching devices. And so all this leads me to think that um, when he wrote down his prayers and his letters, he was aiming to teach his readers some theology, as we've said. So, um, And then he's also modeling prayer for them. Um, and then I, as I was looking over Paul's prayers and his uh, writings about prayer, uh, I kind of felt that there were basically three categories around prayer in his writings. So there's his instructions and teachings about prayer. Then he's teaching theology through his written prayers. And then he's also modeling how to pray through those written prayers. Um, and I'll just give a quick overview of some of Paul's major teachings and instructions about prayer. So first, instructions. Um, there's several places where he instructs his readers to be thankful and to rejoice and we've talked on this podcast about how there are a few varieties of prayer, including petitionary prayer, confession, adoration, and praise, and so forth. Um, and Paul clearly values and encourages adoration and praise. Um, and we'll see more of that in a few minutes when we cover how he models prayer. Um, he gives a general instruction in his letters to the Ephesians and Philippians to pray for all kinds of requests. And in other places, he fleshes that out a little we see in 1 Timothy that he urges the people to make all kinds of intercessory prayer for everyone, including kings and those in authority. Um, in a few places, including Colossians and 2 Thessalonians, he instructs the people to pray for the spread of the gospel. And it's interesting to me that in a few places where he asks for prayer for himself, he's mainly asking to be enabled to spread the gospel. Like in um, Colossians 4.3, where he says, pray for us to that God would open a door for our message so that we may be, proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Uh, and then as far as his teachings about prayer, in 2 Corinthians 1.10, mm -hmm. we see that uh, Paul believes that the prayers of the people are um, a real support in his ministry and his, um, his endurance of persecution. So, wait a second. Um, he says, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to, live, to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So yeah, you see that he, he actually believes that the prayers of the people are working 
um, to support him um, as he endures and as he does his ministry. Um, and then Paul also famously teaches in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our prayers. Um, he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to, uh, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Um, and then lastly, in Philippians and Colossians, Paul teaches us uh, that those who pray will be filled with peace. Um, he says in the often quoted Philippians 4, to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of Christ, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Um, and it might be appropriate to swing back to the first of the instructions I mentioned earlier. Um, if you study Paul's prayers and his instructions about prayer, um, you see that thanksgiving and praise are pretty central themes that permeate all of the other aspects of prayer. Mm. Um, and if you look at all the other elements of his thinking on prayer, you see why he's brimming with gratitude. Um, he believes prayer works. He believes the Spirit helps us to pray and even intercedes for us. He believes God's peace rests on those who pray. Um, there are some places where Paul refers to prayer as labor, but it's clear that it's a joyful labor to him. And speaking for myself, this is a lesson I would do well to pay attention to. Um, I tend not to enjoy praying very much. Mm. And I think if I could see what Paul sees about the joys of laboring in this way, it would change my attitude and there'd be more joy in that discipline for me. And then the second thing is, uh, yeah, so he's teaching theology through his prayers um, in the the prayers that we have that are recorded in the Bible, we see that he's teaching theology, right? So, um, Do you have any specific examples of him teaching theology in prayer in, in, a, yeah, one, in one of his letters or anything like that? Yeah, that's actually... Yeah, so in my mind, this links back to what I said earlier about Paul being educating, educated and knowing the scriptures really well. So with his background as a Pharisee, it makes sense that he would pray like this. Um, and I really want to call this prayer explaining, um, but only if I can get credit for coining a term. Of course. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so there are lots of examples in his letter. So instead of doing like a broad overview, I thought I'd just look at one, um, which would be Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. Um, I'll just go through these quickly. We don't need to like talk about the theology too much, but um, in verse 17, he prayer explains the Trinity in one sentence. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So the three persons of the Trinity are named and their roles are kind of hinted at. Mm. Um, and then we also see in that same verse that the spirit is a gift from the Father, that the spirit makes us wise uh, so that we can know God better. Yeah, that's great. Actually, probably some of the most important proof texts from scripture for understanding the Trinity, now that I think about it, come from prayers of Paul, or like prayers and benedictions that Paul yeah. gives in his letters. Yeah. His The greetings at the beginnings of his letters also have this feature to some extent, where he has these like long like descriptions of like who he is in relation to Christ, and who Christ is in relation to God the Father, and it's just yeah. like this really convoluted way of saying hello. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, moving on to verse 18, uh, we also see that the Spirit enlightens our hearts so that we can see the blessings we have in Christ. Paul says, um, 
pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then in that same verse, we see what some of those blessings are that we have in Christ, namely the hope he's called us to, the riches of our inheritance, and God's power that's at work within us. Um, and then in the back half of verse 19, Paul prayer explains that um, the, uh, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So we see that the power of God that, it's at, that is at work in our lives is like the power that God exerted to raise Jesus from the dead, which sounds like a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. So um, in that same sentence in uh, verses 19 and 20, Paul also uh, is prayer explaining that Jesus was raised from the dead by God's power, that he's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Christ is alive in, in heaven, ruling at God's right hand. Um, there's a lot of powerful theology in that one sentence. Uh, in verse 21, Paul continues that thought. Um, he said, uh, so Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So we see here that after rising from the dead, Jesus took his place place above all powers and authorities, and that his status of being above all things applies not only in the present time, but also in the age to come. Just repeating what he said, basically. Mm. <laughs> um, and Paul goes on in verse 22 and 23 to show that Christ is head of the church, and that the church is his body. Um, so we see that Paul is using his written prayer as a means of teaching some pretty comprehensive theology to the Ephesians. Um, in his prayers, he's... Uh, he starts off telling them, he's praying that God would enable them to know God better. Um, and he goes on to explain uh, what he's praying they'll understand by God's power. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and then in the process, he teaches them all this great theology. Um, and there's, you know, a dozen or so other examples of this kind of prayer explaining method that he uses um, in his letters. Uh, and then if we assume that Paul's writing his prayers out in his letters as a means of teaching readers to pray, then it also makes sense, I think, to assume that in addition to teaching about prayer, or yeah, teaching about prayer and theology, he's also modeling prayer for them. Um, and as I read Paul's prayers, a few things uh, stand out to me. The first thing is, um, and this has always really struck me about Paul, that uh, Prayer is very central in his life. Um, in almost every letter, he writes something about how constant and continual his prayers are for the people. Mm -hmm. um, so in Romans 1, verse 9, 10, he uh, says, God is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Uh, Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, after I, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1, 3 through 4, he says, um, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And then 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 3, he says, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the second thing that I notice in his prayers, um, and this has also always been a challenge to me, is how joyful he is in prayer. 
Um, and I said before uh, that he does refer to prayer as a labor in some places, but it's a joyful labor to him. So in the verses I just read, he says he prays with joy and gratitude when he prays for people. Um, so that's a pretty big thing, too. And then, um, oddly enough, even though Paul frequently instructs the people to pray for all kinds of prayers and requests in his written prayers, we don't see that much variety in his requests. Um, the prayers he wrote in his letters are largely the kind we just covered in Ephesians, thanking God for the faith of the people, asking that they would be enabled to grow in their knowledge of the good things they have in Christ. Um, you don't see him asking for like traveling mercies or good parking spaces and um, or even bigger things like socio-political change or healing or things like that. Um, and of course, we know from his instructions and his teachings that he urged that all kinds of requests be made in prayer. Mm. We just don't see it modeled in these teaching prayers that are preserved. Um, and then the last thing I see Paul modeling um, is this prayer explaining thing that we just talked about. Um, I think this. I think this is really interesting because. We see something similar in the Psalms and in other places in the Old Testament. Um, so there's a biblical model of recounting God's deeds back to him when we pray. So for example, in the Psalms, you'll see the psalmist crying out in distress. Then he's recounting the story of Exodus um, and things like that, you know, um, just recounting these um, stories of deliverance and stuff back to God as mm -hmm. they're making requests or just crying out in distress. Um, and I th think Paul's doing something similar when he packs all this theology into his prayers. Um, and it's kind of interesting because God is not the one who needs to be reminded of what he's done um, or how salvation and sa sanctification work. You don't think that God forgets sometimes? <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. <laughs> so yeah, we're the ones who need the reminders. So in a way this practice of recounting these things back to God serves as a kind of a means of self-soothing and self-preaching. So even as we're approaching God, we're like preaching to ourselves. Um, and the fact that there's so much biblical precedent for this device in prayer makes me think it's probably a pretty vital practice. Um, and for me personally, this is kind of an important discovery because uh, when I'm praying either alone or with others, I often feel really awkward about doing this you know, kind of like I'm wasting everyone's time, or even I sometimes wonder if I'm preaching to the people I'm praying with more than I'm actually praying, or like I'm showing off how much scripture I can quote or something like that. Mm. Um, but when you look at Paul's prayers, you see that this um, prayer explaining theology um, is actually like good practice. Um, it's a way of reminding ourselves what we believe so that we can better align our requests to his will. And it also serves to encourage us by repeating scriptural truth, even as we're um, making petitionary prayer. Well, it's also an interesting counterpoint to the idea that uh, Paul is teaching through his prayers. It doesn't contradict the idea that he's using prayer to teach in his epistles, uh, but it sort of suggests that he might not only be doing that. Because if I understand you right, you're saying that maybe also what Paul is doing is reminding himself. He's like repeating facts about God, about God's nature and what God has done uh, to instruct uh, young believers 
about these things, mm-hmm. but also because maybe even when he's just praying alone, that's what he does anyway. Yeah, right. And uh, and because that's a good way to pray to remind yourself of who God is, and when you're sort of sitting with God, just to say, God, this is who you are, mm-hmm. and I adore you mm-hmm. for for being that that way. And we also do that, this might have already been clear, but we do that for each other. Like, I can't mm-hmm. think of how many times I've prayed with people, and I've, like I say, felt awkward about doing this, but then at the end you see that they're encouraged by being reminded of God's faithfulness. Because before, they were just, like, blinded by whatever the struggle was that they're, mm-hmm. they need prayer for. Right. Um. And then, of course, we know that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, um, so it's probably helpful to think of Him guiding us to the truths that we need to remember and working through the Scriptures in our hearts to encourage us. So um, I think that's a good device to keep in mind. So what are the main takeaways that uh, we can get from all of this uh, material from Paul on prayer? Yeah, so first of all... um, what I just said about recounting, recounting God's work back to him as we pray, I do think that's a powerful device that we shouldn't be embarrassed to use. Um, and when we do that, when we retell the stories or recite some of those uh, theological beliefs, it allows the Spirit to work in our hearts as we pray so that we are encouraged, um, so that our prayers are more honest and aligned to the truth of Scripture. So there's a lot of power in, in praying something like, um, you know, God, you, you led your people through the sea on dry land. Um, you provided for them in the desert. Would you also lead me through this thing I'm going through? Mm. Um, as opposed to just merely focusing on our troubles and, and bringing those in prayer. Um, the second thing I think is, um, you know, I said before that Paul ap- appears to be a consistent and fervent prayer warrior. In lots of places, he says he's continually remembering the people in prayer or constantly prays for them. And whenever I read those verses, I'm really challenged to engage more in intercessory prayer. Um, it's easy to feel like we don't have the time or energy or focus to pray, but um, Paul really believed it was important and that it was an effective way to serve in the kingdom. Um, and I also, um, I said earlier that uh, we see minimal examples of Paul praying for himself. But I don't think that we should gather from that that we shouldn't be praying for ourselves. Um, he did pray for himself, and he asked for prayer for himself. It's just that he primarily recorded these other prayers as teaching tools. Um, so when he says in Philippians, not to be anxious about anything, but to, to present your requests to God, I doubt that he was excluding like personal prayer. Um, and I also think Paul's example of praying communally should be followed. In the book of Acts, Paul prayed often with others. Um, you know, when decisions needed to, make, to be made, when changes were taking place, uh, like when he was leaving a place and leaving people behind. Um, so even though we don't know exactly how Paul prayed in those situations, I think we can learn from him that communal prayer is an important practice. Um, and another point is that while Paul's prayers are sometimes like almost clinically theological, um, they also they also brim with wonder and praise and joy. So um, I think we can really learn from Paul how to continually remember what a privilege it is to be the children of God um, and to overflow with thankfulness for that undeserved gift. So even as we're coming to him with our serious troubles and things that we need, 
we can rejoice in our hope and in our inheritance and in the privilege of just knowing his love. And then taking all this together with what we talked about with Jeremiah, I'm struck by what a wide-ranging and broad practice prayer can be. Um, you know, we can cry to, out to God in our distress. We can unload our burdens on him in prayer. We can approach him with our grief, but we can also approach him with requests and with gratitude and praise. So there's really nothing that we hold in our lives that we can't bring to him in prayer, which I feel like I need to like really meditate on that for a while because it's pretty broad and amazing thing. I'm especially struck by your point about how prayer is a communal uh, or has a communal dimension. Like sometimes when we're talking about prayer in this theoretical uh, kind of way, we th- we talk about it as if it's just something that is a activity between like one person and God. Mm-hmm. But Paul Paul's prayer life especially brings out the communal aspects of prayer. That prayer is something that I probably, well, a large part of the time, the whole church is doing together, that people are doing letters that they send to each other, that uh, we're praying for each other, that we're teaching each other and encouraging each other through prayer, um, and that these are all good things to do with prayer. I don't know. Yeah. That's, I think that's really helpful for yes. me to, to remember. Thank you.